This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Nobody goes into social work for the money. Exactly. They go in it, into it for the meaning and purpose. And that's why our faculty go into academic medicine and science. Exactly right. I remember they Darryl, do it Darryl, on the podcast, Daryl Kirch was saying, talking about bait and switch and sink or swim. We recruit faculty to come to Johns Hopkins to do everything you're talking about it. And, and it's in their heart. This is just something they feel so deeply. And then they arrive into our hallowed halls. And then it's almost like Daryl said, a bait and switch. Oh, yeah, we do want you to do research and deliver excellent patient care and, and engage in education and teaching and that's going to be between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. Because all the other hours you're doing, as you put it, feeding the business enterprise machine. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Kevin Grigsby. Mr. Grigsby is the Senior Director, Member Organizational Development at the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC. And many of us in GFA world are used to seeing Kevin haunting the halls for decade or more, at least. I remember when I first joined GFA, Kevin, I saw you walking around all the time and I was like, who is this guy? He's everywhere. He seems to know everything and everybody. So Kevin is famous in our world. And Kevin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks. Um, I appreciate having the opportunity to chat, and I'm doing well today. Yeah, Kevin, I, I do remember back about, gosh, it, it almost 10 years ago now, and and I, when I first got into the GFA, I remember it was you and Luann Thorndike. It was Kevin Grigsby, the Luann Thorndike, Kevin Grigsby show all the time. You two were like the power duo. I was just amazed. You, you were like, she's my girl crush, my man crush of you guys knew everything about faculty affairs and faculty development and went to so many of your workshops and sessions and learned so much. And then we ended up bringing Luann Thorndike to uh, Rush University Medical Center where I was. And she gave a couple sessions that just blew my mind and really solidified for me that this was this was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then the irony, like the full circle of my life with Luann is that unbeknownst to me at the time, she had been contracted by Johns Hopkins University, my now boss, Dean, Vice Dean Janice Clements, to come and evaluate the Office of Faculty at Hopkins. And Luann Thorndike wrote up her report after spending some time evaluating the office and said, you need to hire an assistant dean for faculty development. And who was that person they hired? Moi. So I, to this day, I'm like, gosh, Luann has no idea uh, how she influenced my life before I even knew who she was when I saw her always with you two doing great programming. And then when she recommended that Hopkins hire someone, and then I got that job. So um, my my history with you probably goes back before almost anybody in faculty affairs. So why don't you tell us how in the world you got to faculty development and academic affairs? Because I do know that you had that Penn State connection way back when. Well, yeah, I, I did. Um... Well, I was connected at Penn State. I spent almost a decade at Penn State as uh, the vice dean for faculty and administrative affairs. Um, and so I, you know, the way that I got to faculty affairs uh, was not 
uh, I think the traditional route of being a person who had a strong interest in higher education um, and or administrative work. Uh, but I started my career at, at uh, my academic career at Yale Child Study Center, uh, where I spent about six years working clinically, um, but also doing some work with uh, organizations. One of the things that's a little different about me, I'm a social worker by training. I have a master's degree uh, in social work, um, but I also have a doctoral degree in social work. And the kind of um, research that I do is about organizational culture. And so a lot of the work that I started to do back years ago in the, in the mid-80s was around how do you work with organizations like group homes and uh, shelters for homeless kids, um, things like that. And how do you make those organizations operate better? How do you make them meet the mission and do a better job of that? I um, eventually left Yale, went to the Medical College of Georgia, and uh, one thing led to another, and I was... Uh, a full professor there in the Department of Psychiatry and Health Behavior um, and doing a lot of work on some cutting-edge technologies around telemedicine. But, but an interesting thing was happening, and that was I was being asked to do more and more administrative work. Um, in fact, I was asked to take a, a position uh, as an interim leader and uh, I, I said I would take the position as an interim leader, but that I had no interest in staying in the position. Well, my, my dean at the time, uh, who, who was Daryl Kirch, had other ideas. And uh, I was uh, basically said, I want you to do this, this position as the director of research and development uh, for the telemedicine center. Um, and I did that job, and I eventually um, was asked to take the position of vice dean uh, for the medical school. Well, one of the things that I, I, I'm not sure a lot of people know about me is that I didn't really want that job, and I didn't really want to be um, an administrator. And as part of my negotiation to take the job, I asked to go to... Uh, one of the Harvard summer programs um, on management and leadership in higher education, the MLE program. And it's a two-week intensive program, but it was all about academic administration. And it was, uh, a, you know, in many ways, a life-changing experience because I realized that faculty affairs was exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. And that's how I got started. Well, um, first at the Medical College of Georgia, uh, working with faculty. Uh, I was the vice dean for administration and research. And so part of my job was faculty affairs. But that wasn't all that I was doing. Oh, I just learned a boatload about you. I didn't know probably half of that stuff. I did not. I knew you did clinical practice. Uh, I did not know you had a doctoral degree. I did not know you were a professor. Certainly didn't know you were vice dean. So you keep this stuff pretty secret because it's certainly not in any of your signature files. And you don't you don't go around um, wearing all these roles and titles uh, after your hat. You kind of float around uh, inconspicuously. 
Well, I, my mom knows about it, oh, and that's really mom. important. I just, you know, okay. I want to be sure that she she knows those things. But um, yeah, but that's that's not really what I'm about. Um, you know, when I went to uh, Penn State, um, uh, Dr. Kirch uh, had taken the position as dean, and uh, Penn State uh, had just been through. Uh, a failed merger. In fact, it was a, in some ways, kind of a spectacular failed merger, as it lasted uh, only three years. Uh, but that campus was left, you know, sort of broken and hurting. Um, and one of the things that I've uh, I've actually written about is managing organizational pain. Mm. Um, and one of the things that uh, Dr. Kurge asked me to do it uh, was to come to Penn State and do an assessment of the organizational culture there. Um, and I, I did that um, and gave him, I, I think, a pretty succinct report about some things that I'd really, uh, you know, that I'd uncovered about the organizational culture that was that were, were, were kind of nuanced uh, nuances of, of that culture. Um, and I, I think that one of the things that was really helpful is that he was creating and had to create a trajectory for the future. And one of the things that was happening there is that this is an organization that it basically had a near-death experience. After I did the assessment I, and I gave it to them, he, he said, why don't you come here and, and, and help with this and help me with this job? I actually said, no, thanks. Um, I was pretty happy doing what I was doing in, in Augusta, Georgia. Um, eventually, his wife and my wife co uh, conspired, I think, mm -hmm. and I was at Penn State. And in fact, it was the best, you know, it was a, a great career move for me, but it also, in, in many ways, allowed me to begin to apply some of the things, some of the ideas and concepts that I had about what an academic affairs, faculty affairs uh, program or um, mission, in a sense, would look like. Fortunately, I was able to draw upon the wisdom of other people uh, who I'd met through the AAMC. Uh, Tom Vigiano, who's at Mayo, for one. Uh, Laura Schweitzer, who uh, went on to be uh, a, a university president. Um, and you know, there are, are several other people, Henry Strobel and others, that really were, in many ways, kind of the pioneers of this work. And I kind of joined that group back in the you know, the early part of this century. And in the work that, w that I was doing at Penn State, uh, decided that it wasn't going to be, I, I didn't want to just, you know, replicate what had been done everywhere else but wanted to really do things right and create more of a, a model um, that could be put into place at other places. And that's how I kind of got started doing that work. All right. You've talked about a bunch of things that I really want to dig in deeper because this organizational pain topic is can't be more relevant than it is right now. So I definitely want to have a conversation about that. So folks listening to the podcast, hold on to your pants here because I want to back up just a little bit because I want to follow the career trajectory first. So 
you you land at Penn State, you help them walk through this uh, terrible uh, merger. And then how does it you wind up um, at the AAMC? I- I'm guessing it's because of your your bigger picture idea of not wanting to just simply uh, replicate models at institutional levels, but you were trying to make impact at a national scene. That's my guess, but do tell. Well, when I was working at Penn State, um, I was very fortunate to work with folks like uh, Luann Thorndike. Um, and we, when, when Luann and uh, Rob Milner and some of our other colleagues there, when we put together a junior faculty development program, we, we were explicit in, in stating up front we wanted to create a national model, something that could be done elsewhere. And so even, even in the way that we funded it, um, we actually funded that program through continuing medical education revenues uh, in its earliest years. And you know, we, we took that, that route of, okay, why not create, if we're going to create something, Let's make it as as best we can. Let's mm-hmm. let's try and do uh, you know be more than just filling a niche or being uh, adequately meeting the needs. Let's let's do this in a way that we can help others uh, across the board. Uh, at around that time, I've been spending a, a lot more time with the AAMC. Um, I was teaching in a uh, a course that Diane McGrain had put together um, on uh, working with teams. Um, I was spending more time with with Tom Vigiano and uh, Henry and uh, Laura and others, uh, you know, sort of looking at the way faculty affairs was becoming something. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no group on faculty affairs. Uh, there was an interest group and we got, uh, we would meet about once a year. Valerie Clark was the person who here who uh, at the AMC who would uh, you know, help us and, and sort of move that group uh, forward. Uh, but we, we got together and in many ways, one of the reasons we got together was to support one another. Um, because we were doing things out in our organizations um, and, you know, kind of individually. But what we were finding is that, you know, collective, collectively, we were dealing with the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we were dealing with the similar issues related to uh, appointment, promotion and tenure, uh, similar issues related to conflict re- resolution and Similar issues related to having uh, developing faculty as leaders um, and and those sorts of things, even even things like uh, faculty retention and recruitment were issues. And so we we had this group that that was meeting um, eventually, uh, and Tom Vigiano was a member of the AMC board. Eventually, um, the GFA, the Group on Faculty Affairs, became a group uh, with a large G um, Mm -hmm. at the AAMC. Uh, Valerie Williams was the the chair of that group, um, the the first chair-elect of the steering committee. And I, or chair, the first chair elected 
yeah. uh, to chair the steering committee. I was um, the chair elect um, and actually took the chair for about two months um, because I uh, and then stepped down from the chair because I became an employee of the AAMC. The way that that happened is that I was approached by Carol Ashenbrenner and Daryl Kirch and others with the idea that you know you I was doing I was doing good work um, <laughs> at the end of one level, uh-huh. but this would be an opportunity to do it uh, at the larger level of pretty much the, all the medical schools in North America. Right, amazing. And what year was that that you came to the AAMC, Kevin? 2009. And so I've been here a decade. Wow. So over this decade, I mean, you're, you're again, one of these or- original people who's, who's been blessed to see the a complete birth and evolution of this field as a professional real field. And uh, how I just can't help but think how how does how does someone like you look at this and the growth of the GFA in terms of our member representatives and every year you're at the professional development conference? What are you? What have you seen um, from the AAMC lens? What have you seen that's evolved over this decade? What's been helpful? Maybe not so helpful. Uh, anything pop in your mind in terms of highlights and things for those of us who are listening to the podcast who are new to this whole field, getting an interesting history lesson, and those of us who have maybe been around for 10 years or maybe just heard of the GFA but have been doing faculty development for a while. I think this is fascinating. So what is your view of this decade with AAMC of faculty affairs and faculty development? Well, I think... Some of the the issues that were issues even now 19 years ago in 2000 or and even prior to that, they're the same issues. And the same issues are related to how do you support faculty? How do you help people to reach their full potential? um, And how do you do that in a way that helps our organizations and those persons thrive? And we, we continue to do that. But there have been changes along the way, too. So, for example, when I first got involved um, at the AAMC and I, the, the, the groups that I, I had oversight of, um, sort of they were in my portfolio, uh, were, was, was initially the faculty forward uh, fact survey. Uh, and that was, that was very new at the time. Uh, but also the group on women in medicine and science had not yet been created. However, there was a women in medicine group that had been together for quite a few years. Uh, in fact, that group uh, was also in, in some ways kind of uh, helped to form a pipeline for people who were going to participate in the ELAM program at Drexel. Um, the person who had, who had been in that role, uh, Diane McGrain, Diane went on to be the, the director of that program um, 
prior, you know, that, that was right around the time that I came to the AAMC. Um, we had had the early and mid-career women in medicine uh, groups meeting. And so a couple of things happened. One is we decided that it would be important to talk about women in medicine and science uh, because we recognized that the basic scientists and other uh, others weren't, uh, we weren't as inclusive as we, we probably could have been. Um, and the other thing is that the programs, the career uh, programs for junior and mid-career faculty, uh, women faculty, they really had been more or less support groups. And there was a real need for that. There was a need to bring people together and say, look, you have common, there are common issues going on. But we, we recognized that it was time to, to change those to become really leadership development programs. And so we changed uh, some of the programming uh, for those uh, those programs. Those programs continue and they remain remarkably popular. Um, I also took the reins of uh, the Associate Dean and Department Chairs program. Um, we now call that OLAM, Organizational Leadership in academic medicine, but we really recognize that uh, the per persons who, in many ways, run the place uh, at medical schools are the department chairs and associate deans. Mm -hmm. And so we created programming there that that was uh, that took note of that and uh, recognized that these were uh, persons who were more than um, deans helpers. They were actually charged with uh, carrying out the missions of the medical schools. Mm -hmm. So those things kind of change. And ultimately, the group on faculty affairs was formed. Also, very shortly thereafter, about a year af after that, or maybe it was two, was the creation of the group um, for women in medicine and science. Mm -hmm. um, and so those those programs continue to this day. Those were, I think, helpful in, um, in, in demonstrating the, the power of convening. In other words, that the AAMC uh, was very good and we remain very good. At, um, I think we're still very good at convening people and pre creating meetings that really develop the talents and skills of persons who you know, we're going to be working in faculty affairs. It wasn't just an, about those persons individually. Right. It was about what they could take to their organizations. Prior to that, it, in many ways, it was a lot. It was probably more oriented towards individual accomplishment. And of course, that's important, but that's not all there is. Where I've seen things evolve and change the most is that we now have formal faculty affairs or academic affairs offices at every medical school. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got two papers uh, that really have has tracked that, uh, one in 2001 and 2010. Um, I wonder if we'll, you know, if someone will take the initiative to do another one um, in, the, in the coming years. We volunteer uh, to do but, that on the Research and Project Development Subcommittee, so hopefully we will do yeah. that. So, you know, there is, you know, we are 
the charge remains as to, you know, what can we do to support these these offices? At, at the same time, there's been something, you know, the change in our organizations uh, has been dramatic. Um, and when I say dramatic, I, I mean that in terms of, you know, nobody has abandoned any of the missions. But I, I think over time, we've seen the uh, greater emphasis on the clinical mission um, because of the financial model that we use, where clinical revenues are largely support our research and educational efforts. Um, you may have seen the the model that I have. Some people had talked about academic, uh, you know, the, the academic health center being uh, more like a tricycle. Um, I prefer the big wheel um, because the, the, the big wheel, um, uh, you know, really, I think, is more illustrative of, of having, you know, this clinical enterprise out in front and um, having the wheels, you know, this these you know, the, the, the research, the community service uh, or community engagement and educational missions as, as part of the big wheel uh, are important. But the emphasis isn't as as much uh, on those those missions. What's really interesting is you if you've ever seen a kid try and ride a big wheel that doesn't have the rear wheels, <laughs> it's amazing. They don't grip, um, because, they just spin and spin and spin. That's right. They don't grip. It, it just spins and spins and spins. And the energy that's you know, being expended, you know, is, is pretty awesome. But in many ways, it's to no avail. Uh, because w- without the, the complete, without all the components, we can't really move forward. So one of the things that we've seen, and uh, one of the great, concerns I have has been the effect, uh, and it isn't, you know, people talk about our clinicians, uh, but it isn't just the clinicians, it isn't just the physicians. We're, we're tracking this kind of, these feelings of burnout amongst basic science and other faculty. Mm-hmm. And so we, we labeled this, and there are measures now of burnout. Uh, Mayo has done some really good things. A lot of our organizations are beginning to appoint chief wellness officers and the like. And you know, I, you know, people say, "Well, well, that isn't really faculty affairs." Well, yeah, it is, mm-hmm. um, because if if the well-being and and the you know the ability of our faculty to thrive. Is, is an element of faculty affairs, well, then it's it's squarely, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's clearly a part of that. Mm-hmm. What I'm concerned about is that our organizations are changing dramatically in terms of the volume of essentially business that's being conducted in the clinical enterprise. Um, you know, I hear people talk about, well, our health system uh, in this country. Well, I, I generally challenge that. We don't have a health system in this this country. We have health systems. Mm-hmm. You know, Kaiser's a health system. Uh, there are health systems that are out there. But in terms of the 
you know, connection and the way that they uh, are systemic, you know, for example, can electronic medical records at one organization talk to the record at another? Nope. Well, that's highly unlikely because they could be using two entirely different systems. Right. Well, people will say, well, that, you know, the impetus for that is confidentiality and it's, well, it's not quite that simple. Um, what we have is we have our faculty spending more and more time on meeting the needs of a business enterprise rather than teaching, providing good patient care, engaging with the community, and creating new knowledge through discovery and science. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I'm not going to attack the idea that burnout has become more common. I think it has. At the same time, I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think the bigger problem, and, and there's some writing out there, some literature out there now about it, is, is something that, that's called moral injury. Mm. And uh, moral injury, um, it is the idea that we are engaging in activities um, that, that isn't necessarily uh, what uh, we were trained to do that. In fact, the, you know, the complexity of these competing agendas and conflicted, you know, some people have called it conflicted allegiance, um, you know, really drives our organizations in a negative direction. If you think about it in terms of our faculty vitality, you know, it's, it's really, not being able to provide high quality care and healing, but it's also about in academic health. And that's true for physicians across the board, but in our health systems, it's also about providing high quality research and high quality education. You know, so I, I told you that I was a social worker earlier, right. but I went into social work for a different reason than most people. I went into social work. I went into the social work for the money. You did not. <laughs> that's right. I did not. And that's why you went into academic medicine for the money. Well, the reason that I use that is nobody goes into social work for the money. Exactly. They go in it, into it for the meaning and purpose. And that's why our faculty go into academic medicine exactly and science. Exactly right. I remember Daryl on the podcast, Daryl Kirch was saying, talking about bait and switch and sink or swim. And everything you're saying is just resonating with me so clearly that at a recent faculty advisory board meeting, we were talking about how we recruit faculty to come to Johns Hopkins to do everything you're talking about it, uh, talking about the and it's in their hearts. It's what they've been studying and, and striving. And this is just something they feel so deeply and personally. And then they arrive into our hallowed halls. And then it's almost like Daryl said, a bait and switch. Oh, yeah, we do want you to do research and 
deliver excellent patient care and, and, and engage in education and teaching. And that's going to be between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. because all the other hours you're doing, as you put it, you know, you're, you're feeding the business enterprise machine. So there is that sense of deer in the headlights. Wait a minute. This is what academic medicine is. I'm clicking through thousands of screens on Epic and I'm, you know, the modern age, modern era of kind of shuffling papers, but you're just shuffling screens on windows on, on computer screens. So it is this feeling of they've been hoodwinked. Right. And it's the realities of that, of, you know, ultimately when, when you look at it objectively and you say, okay, so what are we really trying to do? The answer is make money. Yeah. And that's not why we went into the field that we went into. And so what happens in the way that people experience moral injury is that that is emotionally and morally exhausting. It just, you know, always dealing with these, these competing priorities day to day mm-hmm. and doing that in a place where we were trained to do one thing, but our worth and value is being measured in it, you know, according to a different metric. Right. And that metric is productivity. That's right. And, you know, and, so and the, a lot of the Yeah, the basic scientists are, are exactly the same as you talked about earlier, that they they want to conduct research and contribute to science and and think deeply and solve important problems and yet they're similarly chasing bucks they're chasing those grants and even when they get the grants um, the institutional contribution is sometimes invisible to them they don't they don't get the uh, added administrative support or resources to actually do the research so I think oftentimes they our basic scientists also find themselves saying, wait a minute, what? I've turned myself into, um, I'm like a, a, a development coordinator. I'm constantly chasing money and I'm not in my lab. I'm not teaching new scientists. I'm not writing papers because I'm forever looking at spreadsheets to uh, identify bridge funding. So it's. I think you're, you've hit something that is so it's so true to, to everybody in academic health center. It's this complete st- state of exhaustion and questioning their whole exi- this existential angst. Is this is what this is why I'm here? This is what I wanted to do. You're exactly right. Well, I think what it, you know what comes back to for me is thinking about organizational culture. Right. Um, Edgar Schein, who is you know sort of the one of the pioneers in talking about organizational culture and leadership, one of the things that he he says is that, you know, leaders, what's the job of a leader? Well, it's really to create and maintain an organizational culture. And I believe that as leaders in faculty affairs and and in in being the persons who are, um, you know, trying to do our best to protect the value of the uh, and appreciation for those persons, um, you know, 
we need to help our institutions change the culture. Mm. And that, right, what's happening now is these, the multiple competing priorities are leaving people exhausted. That's right. And we have not yet successfully confronted our organizations with with this, you know, with, with the the true, you know, dilemma mm-hmm. of what Dr. Kurtz described as bait and switch of training people to be compassionate, to be scientific, to be looking for the bigger answer, and then trapping them inside organizations where they're being measured, their worth is being measured in mm-hmm. dollars. Right. Well, so of course, this begs the question, how do we, uh, how do we do this? It clearly takes a lot of courage and a lot of intestinal fortitude to sit at a meeting with our leadership and maybe say, no, maybe say, you know, Let's get back to basics here. How is this going to impact faculty? Or, you know, how do we change that conversation uh, to make sure? Because, you know, you can't blame, you know, I'm thinking, putting myself now in in our department chair's positions. We hear from our faculty that the annual review was the first couple sentences out of the annual review processes looking at your RVUs, you know, how much money are you generating? So that right there proves your point of I'm just a cog in this machine. So, but, but they're being held to these very high standards themselves. So it kind of runs downhill, right? And the Dean is held to the standards of the CFO who's talking about how we're doing um, financially. So in a way you, you can, you can see how this is people become imprisoned by this culture, this way of thinking, this way of being. So how does one do this? Uh, and, and all I can think of is I'm thinking of somebody who's running a, a mom and a dad who are running a household and they, they adopt, uh, you know, the mission vision value of our home and our family is, is thus and such. And we are going to courageously push back against these outside forces that seek to change the culture of this family, meaning pretend it's something like technology at the dinner table or something more nefarious like fashion and Instagram influencers. So other kinds of nonsense. So a mom and a dad or two parents can put their foot down and perhaps um, courageously say this is not something that this household or this family believes in. Well, how do we blow that up to something that's so big as an academic health center? How do we, as the guardians of the faculty, uh, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we get this courage and what do we do? How can we do this? Kevin? Well, I think we're actually starting to do this. So I, I'm not, um, you know, pessimistic. I, I think that one of the first steps is the acknowledgement of of what we're calling burnout, and mm-hmm. and at least uh, the the first step of trying to help our faculty uh, and our trainees to be more resilient. 
Well, one of the issues, though, is, you know, these are already the most resilient people I've ever met. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, so that is that is part of the dilemma is that I'm not sure that, um, you know, telling somebody that um, they need to take a, a break to meditate is going to be helpful. What What will be helpful, though, and where I think things are beginning to um, or change is that people are beginning to realize that unless we treat these folks, and by folks, I'm, I don't mean just physicians, but I'm really speaking of our faculty, um, unless we begin to treat them with the respect that they deserve, give them the autonomy that they need, um, and the authority that they need to make good decisions, uh, you know, that that's really what's going to help them to find purpose and meaning in what they're doing and keep doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, people, you know, physicians do have the highest suicide rate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, you know, part of it, I believe, is, is because of this. Uh, but I think that we also need to understand that, okay, this is what we've built. This is what we've created. If we want things to continue as they are, the best thing we can do is nothing. And doing something, um, you know, people say, well, it's got to be at the, you know, at the upper level. It has, I I actually believe that it, it does, but that's not the only place it needs to be. Um, One of the things that I think is, is kind of interesting is that what would happen if we, didn't have any of the administrators in our organizations. Hmm. <laughs> okay. What would happen if we didn't have them? But we still had the physicians, providers, the researchers, and educators. Wow. Because what would happen is we could continue to see patients. We could continue to do research. We could continue to teach. Okay. But what would the administrators do if there was no faculty? Hmm. Hmm. Boom. Wow. Yeah, it's it's essentially that they, you know, this is the this is the group of people who are doing the heavy lifting and doing the work. And one of the things that I think uh, that has gone uh, under recognized is the power in that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating for, uh, you know, people to stop doing what they're doing altogether. But I do think that the that our own um, part of our own self self care has to be self advocacy. Um, it also has to be our willingness to confront leaders. With these, you know, these difficult, this difficult information. Yeah. Now, we we just released uh, the AMC has a released a study on uh, uh, on salary equity, and salary equity. I you know that that is a you know it's a component of this. You know what what if you're doing all this work and you're being you're not being compensated on a level that your colleagues are. 
That that is an even greater insult. So we're doing something about that, but it's going to take action at the local level mm-hmm. everywhere. And so this idea of, okay, what's the one big thing that we can do that will solve the problem of moral injury? There is no one big thing. Right. There's 50 million little things. Yeah. Well, what I what I like about what you're saying is you're making me think of all the how this happens in in getting people to open their eyes is getting conversations started. Is what you're talking about, like when you said this faculty salary equity surveys. So you hear this concept, this idea, these national data, and then it trickles down, and then institutions do faculty equity data. You hear at the national level about women aren't getting in leadership positions. So then local institutions conduct studies and looking at women in leadership positions. Or there's um, Office of Women in Science and Medicine. Some institutions now have their offices in science and medicine. You hear the national reports, the AMA, the AAMC, everybody talking about burnout. Burnout comes down and we do our own surveys and we get our own wellness officers. So you see this pattern of an organization like the AAMC and groups like the GFA learning about and talking about and raising visibility around issues. And it's exactly what you said. You That convening people allows that seed to be planted locally when they go back home. So that is incredibly valuable to have the the aha moments and then run back to home institutions and say, all right, now us, now us. So that is, that's so powerful. And yet we can probably all think of things that kind of come in and out flavor of the month, flavor of the year. And there it's all hyped up for a couple of years. And then it kind of um, goes away because something new has taken its place. So I'm wondering how we sustain these efforts other than just keep continuing to beat these drums. And here's how, here's how I think we can be helpful there. We can't just keep doing this and speaking our language. We, we all know what we're talking about. We all get it. Um, what we need to do is, is speak the language of business. Um, so, for example, incivility and, uh, is, has incredible consequences in our organizations. In, in light of the, you know, given what we're talking about in terms of moral injury and burnout and things like that. But at the same time, um, it's expensive. Christine Pearson and Christine Porath are two uh, business professors who wrote a book called The Cost of Bad Behavior. Uh, and the organization they used as a model was an academic health center. No way. And what they found, they found that at, that at this academic health center, which was um, had an annual, an annual revenue cycle of around a billion dollars, I think the average academic health center is about 1.3. So it's a pretty typical place. But that that organization spends $71 million a year in recurring fees for incivility. 
on incivility. I mean, that is a lot of money. Another thing that we can talk about is the cost of recruiting and retaining um, faculty because it's so expensive. It's not like it's just, you know, it's that a bus comes along and someone else gets along. If it is a researcher, there is a research cycle. They need literally years to get a full, you know, fully engaged in a, a research project. Likewise, with our clinicians, it takes three years to get to a full practice. So we're, we're, when we t- start talking about it in terms of, okay, this has a price tag. Right. And the price tag isn't just that, um, you know, people are, are experiencing moral injury and, and that we have this, this very high rate of burnout and suicide. It's also, you know, in terms of the business, yeah, I can think of a lot of things I would do with $71 million. Oh. Well, you know, Kevin, this is, you're making me think about um, when you say speaking the language of business, you know, the Group on Faculty Affairs has partnered with just recently the Office of Women in, um, the Group on Women in Medicine and Science, GWIMS, for our most recent PDC, Professional Development Conference in Chicago, and and we've partnered with GDI, the Group on Diversity and Inclusion. My gosh, is, I, I... kind of scared to say it, but should we explore um, partnering with the group on business affairs? I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we come together I, and get, get all of us to get them at our table and, and, and learn so that we can learn to speak their language and they can learn more about us? Is that, is that ridiculous? No, it's not ridiculous. It's, it's one of the things that I see, you know, that the AAMC, where we can provide real value, is in convening different groups and, and doing that and bringing them together to learn about what's happening. Um, because I think oftentimes there are similar things happening and they're happening in parallel. Right. But we're not. You know, we just haven't had the opportunity to really bring those conversations together. You know, I, now for our leadership forum, the leadership forum here um, in in June, we had a program on gender harassment, discrimination, uh, et cetera, and that that was one of those meetings where we did get a very diverse group of people together and people that are in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. I think we you know that part of the solution is just that. I, I do think though that there are other, you know, there are other pieces uh, that we need to think about um, in terms of a larger systemic issue. Mm-hmm. So for example, what would it look like if we had a true health system? Mm-hmm. It would probably be pretty different. Well, when you were talking earlier about imagine if we got rid of all the administrators, what popped in my mind was, have you ever gone to a a parking garage when the little reader, the card reader 
didn't work. And what has happened with me is they just throw that arm up in some instances, probably not so much as more today, but, and people can come and go. The, the thing's not working. We're figuring it out. Open up the, the parking garage arm blocking wooden piece of thing. Cars come in and cars come out. People are so happy because you're not pulling a card. You're not having to pay. And the cars come in, the cars go out. And I'm thinking that concept of let's play this current model forward. Let's play this model forward. If patients were able to walk in and walk out, if faculty members were be able to walk in, walk out, no hassle, what would that look like and what would that be? And of course, any business-minded financial person listening to this, their head just exploded because it's, and of course, absurd. But I love the idea of we can get some economists on board here who would think about the current model, the current business model right now. Play this forward 10, 20, 50 years. And what does that look like? And then what do our faculty look like in that model? And I bet you a lot of us can actually play that forward in our minds and we see where that's going, and especially someone like you who has that perspective of before time began with GFA and now. It's it's pretty frightening to me. Well, I think that but but I think you you're making a point that that I would like to emphasize too. It's bigger than thinking that there is some one person or one group that can make it change. Changing our culture is going to require everyone's efforts. And so there's, like I said before, there's no big thing to do. There's 50 million little things. Um, I believe that the cumulative action, the cumulative effect is what eventually will help us to make change. Um, some people say, well, you can't really change a culture. You can change behavior and then the culture will change. Well, the answer is no. You, you, that, that's somewhat tautological in saying, well, the culture can't change, but the behaviors do and then it does. Well, it changes. You can change culture. Yeah. But it starts with you. It starts with the N of one. Right. And that's, kind of where we're headed. So what... Wh- so I'm... Yeah, leave us. I, I, I'm, I want to leave this this conversation with some um, some actionable items. Can you give... Can you think of some very specific examples of what a faculty affairs or faculty development dean, program coordinator, listening to this podcast right now, what can we do? What couple things can we do right now today? Okay. Train your chairs. Ah, <laughs> chairs done. and associate deans need training. It is not uh, something that comes natural. Um, it is. It really does require um, a, a different set of skills and uh, a creation of a different toolbox. We can, you can do that through the AAMC, but that can be done locally too. And when I say train your chairs, I also mean recruit the right chairs, mm-hmm. um, recruit the right people. And I think that's part of that's one thing that can be done right now. The other thing is you know, th- there is 
a degree of denial, I think, on the part of of our colleagues who are in the you know in the business enterprise. I do think it would be a good idea to have a conjoint meeting of faculty affairs and business affairs. I do think that those kinds of things would be helpful. So at the at the national level, that would be helpful. But you know, that's the sort of thing that would likely be helpful at the local level as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you, that that's that's an important point. So I think locally, uh, what we might be able to do is invite these folks to our tables. So in our advisory board meetings, I heard so many faculty members, for example, complaining about how hard it is to hire staff, especially when they're getting grants and it takes them three, four months to hire somebody. By then, the grant has already started. They're behind. There are all these issues. And I heard this over and over and over again. And I looked around the room and I said, well, why don't we have somebody from HR sitting here at this board? And people looked at me like, well, why would you want an HR person here? I said, because they need to hear this. And sure enough, when I got the head of HR, she was when starting to tell her story of how things work and the faculty went nuts and her eyes were like, wait a minute, I had no idea about these. I mean, just putting her at that table was a huge education for her. And I'm telling you, things started happening because she saw firsthand from the faculty on mass, the effect this was having. And so just bringing somebody, inviting them to a meeting was boom, some things could happen there. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the power of conversation. I mean, uh, my colleague Bill Mallon and I in our in the books we write, the Successful Department Chair Series, we encourage people to, to stop looking at our organizations as machines and to look at them as conversations. And they are really a, a you know, a series of, of, of conversations that need to be heard by... <laughs> by more people in the organizations sometimes, but that is the way that we can begin to make some change. I need to leave it at that. Yeah, uh, um, that was excellent. This has been such a great conversation, Kevin. Did you want to leave us with any parting thoughts before we close up for the day? All of these changes, uh, they begin with you. Yeah, that's it. We got it. We got to have the courage. We can do this, folks. This is We've been talking to Dr. Kevin Grigsby, Senior Director, Member Organizational Development at the AAMC. I've learned a lot. I'm sure you have as well. Let's not uh, let this drop. Let's move forward. Make some changes at your local institutions. Let's consider partnering with our business friends and colleagues and uh, paint a brighter future. We can change the culture one by one. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.